0: Welcome to The Short Stacks, our shorter conversations with authors about their process and their books. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today I am joined by the wonderful, prolific, and extremely talented Jacqueline Woodson, who is the author of, among many other things, Red at the Bone, which is our pick for this week's The Stacks Book Club. Jacqueline joins us to talk about her process and, of course, this masterful book. There are no spoilers today, so enjoy. Remember, everything we talk about on today's episode can be found in the show notes. You can use the link there to shop for the books we've discussed and read the articles we've mentioned. Plus, you'll find our social media accounts and the social media accounts of our guests all in the show notes so you can stay connected to The Stacks. If you love this show and want more of it, check out our Patreon page. You can support the work we're doing here and earn perks for yourself like our virtual book club and more. Go to patreon.com slash thestacks to join. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review this show wherever you get your podcasts, especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts. All right, now it's time for my spoiler-free conversation with Jacqueline Woodson. All right, everybody. I am here today with Jacqueline Woodson. If you don't know who Jacqueline Woodson is, I guess you've been living under a rock, but she is a prolific writer, novelist, storyteller. Jacqueline's most recent book is Red at the Bone. Jacqueline, welcome to The Stacks. Uh, It's so great to be here. So happy to have you. We always start in the same place. In about 30 seconds or so, can you tell me about Red at the Bone?
1: Oh man, you want me to tell you in 30 seconds? I can't. You can't. I can tell you it's a novel. It took me three years to write it. I can't talk about it in 30 seconds. You could give us like a preview, a tease. Uh, it's the story of three generations of people growing up, and coming of age and growing old in Brooklyn, New York. Perfect. Post Tulsa race massacre. Perfect. Perfect.
0: Where did you come up with the idea for this book or how did this book come to you?
1: Uh, I think the inciting incident would probably be in my 20s and learning about uh, the Tulsa race massacre and never having heard about it in school, from my family, from newspapers. And that felt like a deep injustice to me. And um, a lot of times when I'm writing, I think, what if, what if, what if? And I start asking myself all of these questions. And the question I was asking in that case was, um, what if a family that had um, come through the Tulsa Race man- Massacre, what if their um, ancestors had been part of the Tulsa Race Massacre and they, these um, young people ended up in Brooklyn, New York? What would that look like? How would they have gotten there? And I started weaving the narrative of the family. How do you
0: decide if a book that you're writing is going to be a young adult book or a book for
1: full grown adults or how does that <laughs> process work? It's usually based on the voices I hear in my head. So um, if the characters are a certain age, like with um, Red at the Bone, we have the character of Melody, who's 16. But we also have the voices of her parents, both young and when they get older, and the grandparents. And so because there are so many adult narratives in it, I knew it was going to be an adult book. Whereas when you have something like say my book after Tupac and Dee Foster, like the girls are between 11 and 15. And that book kind of breaks the rule of uh, middle grade young adult fiction because characters stay one age throughout the narrative. Um, But that's how I know. If I know the character is not going to age during the course of the book, if they're going to stay a child and in that child's voice, we're going to get the story, then I know it's going to be a book targeted at young people. But when you look at something like Another Brooklyn where... August is in her thirties, looking back at a time when she was 15, then we know that's an adult book because it's an adult perspective.
0: Okay. Okay. That makes a lot of sense to me. I'm relatively new to young adult reading. Mm -hmm. um, And so I have so many questions around how that process works for Mm -hmm. an adult who does the writing of young adult, you know? Yeah. (laughs) But back to Reddit the Bone. Well, how do you name your characters? I'm always fascinated by how this happens because you've written so many books. You've named Mm -hmm. so many people. How do you keep coming up with new names?
1: Sometimes I get stuck on a letter. Like uh, I was writing something now and there were a lot of C people. And sometimes I get stuck on J people. So I have to watch that. (laughs) But I used to name them based on names I love. So Jeremiah was a name I really loved. Um, Ellie... Um, but then um when I was pregnant with my daughter Toshi, I realized I had used up so many names I loved. I mean her name we knew it was gonna be Toshi because of her godmom. But um but I all I never give a character a name of someone I know, okay. um, because I don't want the character to be too much like the person because characters are bigger than life, right? They're right. bigger than um regular human beings. And so I usually try to think of a a name that of someone I don't know. And I know a lot of people, so that becomes hard. But um, even with the name Melody, I have a good friend, Melanie, and I was like, is she going to be Melody? Should I try (laughs) something really different? But it felt like it worked. And so once I have a name in my head, um, it starts informing who the character is, like someone like Aubrey. I don't know any Aubreys, but I knew that, for me, that name evokes someone who was really sensitive and thoughtful and and loving, um and and okay with his position in the world. Um, and the same with Iris, you know, Iris is a goddess and kind of a um a Hellion in this way, and so it it made sense.
0: Right. When I when I saw Aubrey I thought of Drake.
1: Wait, wait, wait! Is that why Drake? That's, that's Drake's that's first fr- name, isn't it, Aubrey? Oh, I did not. Yeah. I did not know that. I did not. My, I'm sure my daughter's going to be like, "Mommy, how could you not know that?" I so did not know that. I think so. Otherwise, I made I'm that up. Sure but I'm, right. that's what I thought of when I saw Aubrey. But it could oh. be made up.
0: Uh, <laughs> um, one so of the exciting. things that I noticed as a reader reading, I read another Brooklyn and read at the Bone within a few weeks of each other and the way that you write black women being one I'm sure and having spent much of your life around them as we do when we're black women you okay. get at something so subtle and unique about each of about each of the characters who are black women in your book and also the men but as a black woman I was so connect- I felt so connected to that and I just wonder How do you imagine your characters or how do they come to you? Because they feel so real and unique in a way that oftentimes I find that writers aren't always able to find the subtleties and differences and samenesses between people that are similar.
1: Uh, That's a really good question. Let me see if I know the answer. Okay. I think that the thing is um, when you write there's some part of you in every character you create, um, whether they're male or female, queer or straight, um, black or white. Whether, you know, you have to insert some part of yourself into them to make them human. And so your humanity becomes their humanity. And I think when I'm thinking about black women, first of all, I have such a deep love for black people in general Right. <laughs> Um, and, and, and so because of that, I feel like I can see all of our humanity, um, and I, and I, and growing up black, growing up, as you said, around black women and the ways in which we're so similar and so different at the same time and And the nuances of our existences are so important to me. And that sense of um, needing to be seen, like I really want my characters to be seen, not just as kind of stereotypes or or cardboard characters, but as deeply um, rooted in this way. And, And so for me, it's about the rewriting and the adding the layers until I get the character to a place where I feel something for them, where I'm emotionally connected to them. And I know that once I'm feeling that way, that my readers are going to feel that way too. But, you know, I think when we look at someone like Iris, who is so complicated in all of these ways, at the end of the day, you can't hate her because you understand her. You know, right. and and I think um, for me, that getting that character to that place means coming to love them. And And when you love someone, you can... Put, um, put them out on in the world, warts and all, and, and, and they'll be seen and understood. Yeah, that's
0: so beautifully put. I feel like in Red at the Bone, while there are things that characters do, we're not going to spoil anything today. While there are <laughs> things that characters do that I didn't necessarily like, I always <laughs> understood where the thing that had happened before or the reason or the – the motivation that they had to do that thing. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a testament to what you're saying is as you add the layers to the characters it makes the decisions at least make sense, you know? Because mm-hmm. that's also part of being around people in real life. Someone will do something and you're like, that's such an asshole thing to do. <laughs> but you get it because you think to yourself, yeah. okay, well, their mom said this to them and then they had yeah. this thing happen at their job and, then, and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. I still am annoyed and my feelings are hurt, <laughs> but I might be able to let this go in the future because I kind of get exactly.
1: it. Yeah, exactly. totally.
0: Do you ever get to a place in your books where you're so frustrated or or turned off by what what's going on in your process that you stop writing or throw it away or mm-hmm. put, lock it up? Or or do you usually find that you can find your flow?
1: Oh, it's all of that. I You know, every book falls apart, right? Every book gets <laughs> to that place where you hate it, even if the day before you absolutely, absolutely loved it. You get to that point and you're like, this is trash. And, and I think the difference between finishing a book and having a whole bunch of half written books in your drawer is pushing past that place of the book falling apart and past that place where it sucks. It absolutely sucks. Your characters are flat. The story makes no sense. Um, it feels cliched. Uh, and and that's where the um, big work gets done, right? That's when you have to start scaffolding and figuring out why your characters are doing what they're doing and, and what the story is trying to say. And, um, and how it's trying to say it and what do the characters want and how are they going to get it and asking yourself all of those technical questions, but all of those kind of um, bigger than life questions, too. Mm. So, so, that you know, I've written 30 something books and every single book I write, whether it's a picture book or an adult book or a middle grade, it, the story falls apart. And and I have the day of where my family, you know, basically doesn't want to come home because I'm so, <laughs> I'm so cranky. <laughs> And so how do you know
0: when you're done with a book?
1: I know because um, when I get to the end and I feel some kind of way uh-huh. um, I, and I feel like I'm exhaling and, and the sense of, yep, yep, that's where the story was going. This is what I was trying to get to. And, and it's, it's a feeling. Um, sometimes it takes a lot of rewriting to get to that feeling. Everything I write, I read out loud. And when I'm reading The End Out Loud and I hear that moment, I know. I just know. Right. So I I don't have that issue of having of um, feeling like I can't let my book go. So no, that's not me. Did you ever have
0: that in the beginning when you first started writing or just that wasn't who you are?
1: It's not who I am in that way that I know when the book is done i know when i've gotten to the ending um but i definitely still rewrite like Mm -hmm. i definitely like when you look at something like brown girl dreaming i rewrote it like 33 times but then (laughs) it was done but in the after the first print run i realized no i could say that just a little bit better so for the second printing (laughs) i'm going to tweak that a little but but it still it doesn't feel like it's not done it feels like i could just make it a little bit better
0: And when you are finished with the book and it's outside of, I guess, the publishing world, so not your editor, not the people who work at your publishing house or who've helped you with the book, but who's the first person that you entrust with reading a new work by you?
1: (laughs) So the first person that I talk about the work with while I'm writing it is my friend Toshi Regan, who's a musician and my best friend and, um, and very, very wise. And so I, I talk about what I'm struggling with with her. Uh, and then when the book is done, my partner, Juliet, reads it and and my editor simultaneously. So they both get it. Um, but but the um, leading up to that, it's definitely Toshi.
0: OK, and you said this book took you about three years
1: to write. Mm-hmm. Is that yes. normal for you or is that a long time? It depends. Um, Another Brooklyn, the same thing. Um, Brown Girl Dreaming, the same thing. But then I had books that I finished in a year. I fin. I wrote a book called I Hadn't Meant to Tell You This. That took me two weeks. But it depends on how much of the story is already um inside me all already ready to be kind of that's already gestating <laughs> ready to be born right. in this way and some stories are less ready than others and I have to do a lot to kind of get them on the page
0: and what do you do is it like you do writing exercises or you just kind of start writing and then start <laughs> over or how do you how do you um, birth something like that
1: I I don't know it was <laughs> a who said you know, writing is easy. I just sit down at my typewriter and bleed. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I definitely feel like there's a lot of bloodshed in the writing of a book. But I do I start with a voice in my head, a character, and for Red at the Bone it was Iris. And I knew that she was going to be a young pregnant woman. And I knew that it wasn't going her pregnancy wasn't going to be a tragedy. Mm-hmm. You know, so I knew her pregnancy was going to be yet another beginning of something. Um and I knew that whatever the book was going to be that it was starting in the middle of something. Um, So, so, so those are things I knew. And I really wanted to understand them. I really wanted to see what I was, what my brain was trying to say, what the story was trying to be. And that's where I wrote Iris. I wrote some of Aubrey. I went and wrote Aubrey's mom. Um, I wrote some parts of so boy. And she was hard to unlock. Like she, I kept, when, when I realized why she was there, aside from being Aubrey's mom and her journey to being Aubrey's mom, um, when I realized why she was on the page, I was like, duh, like, yeah. like, this makes so much sense. This is so much a part about the interconnectivity of all of them. And, and, and that kind of, um, way that, you know, the, almost the ecosystem of family, right? Yeah. Like, um, we all need each other in some deeply um, ancient way to move forward. And, and, so, um, and, and so it was just writing bits and pieces of all of them, and really not knowing how they were going to come together mm-hmm. and what the final story was trying to say. And so just trying to um, kind of pull it out of me and, and, and get it onto the page and get them into the world. But, yeah, it was definitely a journey. How did you
0: know that you wanted to be a writer? Or was there someone or something that inspired you to want to write for a living?
1: <laughs> so I've known I wanted to be a writer since I was seven. Uh-huh. And and I didn't have, you know, I had books. So I had the library. I had stories I loved. And I was always... Making up stories, getting in trouble for telling stories, and I had a teacher actually. Like I knew I loved the physical act of writing. Like I loved writing my name. I loved just writing words. Um, once I um cracked the code of reading and writing, it felt like magic, right? Mm. That you could just tell these stories. But um, I had a teacher who said instead of lying, write it down because when you write it down, it's fiction. It's not a. Mm. And I was like, oh shit, you mean like <laughs> I, this could be legit? Um, but but I but I. I I didn't have a backup plan. Like writing was the thing I loved. And, and, um, I knew also that I had to choose something I loved cause I was going to be doing it right for the rest of my life. And I couldn't imagine not writing. Like even if I had to have other jobs, like writing was going to be the thing that kind of gave me life in this way. So, so, and that was I, really, I mean, I wanted to play for the NBA. I wanted to be a basketball player, I thought. Um, but I didn't have any other thing that I thought, yeah, this is what I want to do. I, I would lie about it, you know, because my mom wanted to hear different stories. Like, I want to be a teacher. I want to be a lawyer. Like, But, but it wasn't the truth.
0: <laughs> so it's always inside of you. And how mm-hmm. do you write? like physically, where are you? How many hours a day? Can you listen to music? Are you in your house? Are you eating a snack? Do you have beverages? (laughs) Like set the scene. I always love hearing how different people create the space to write in.
1: So my day starts about 6.45. Um, I get up. Um, my, uh, I have two kids. I have a 17-year-old and 11-year-old. Um, they're out of the house by 7.30. My partner uh, works outside of the house. She's a doctor. She has to go to Manhattan to work. Um, so everybody's leaving my house by 7.30 except the dogs. And then the dog walker comes and takes the younger dog. Then I take the older dog for a quick walk. And then the day is mine until about four thirty or five o'clock, sometimes even later because both my kids fence. So they have to go on to fencing. Um, And usually right now I'm talking to you on the top floor of my house, which is my daughter's room, because it's right now the quietest because people are working downstairs. But my writing space is usually at my kitchen counter, which is one story down. And then two stories down is my office. And that's where all my awards are. That's where my assistant works. But on the days when my assistant isn't there in the late afternoon, I move from the kitchen counter down from the kitchen island down to my office and I close the door and that's where I get some of my super, super best writing. But I wait for the late afternoon for that. I never start writing without putting on my headphones. Um, and have, I have the same playlist running and it gets curated, it gets changed a little, but some of, there's some foundational songs that stay the same. And the minute I put on my headphones, the world kind of shuts out and it's just me and my writing. And, um, I Always have a candle lit downstairs., um, I blow it out at night cause you know, right <laughs> but but um, but, but I really try to do it for four, five, six hours, the days that I can, the days that I'm not traveling. And I'm usually working on more than one thing, like today I'm working on a screenplay an article for the New York Times. Yesterday, I handed in a draft of my middle grade book. So those are the three projects I'm working on right now. Um, when I finish these, I'm going to start working on the screenplay of Red at the Bone. Um, so, so that's kind of how it goes. I'm, I'm constantly writing. I'm also writing letters and poems and all that stuff.
0: Do you, do you like writing a bunch of different things kind of at the same time? Or is that mm-hmm. more a necessity?
1: I like it that way. I get bored. I, I'm sure I have ADD, so I think um, you know. When I get bored with one, I go to the other. When I get bored with that, I move to something else and and come back. But I, I like having a bunch of things in the air.
0: And how do you? I'm sure you get this question all the time. How do you write so many? I mean, you've written thirty plus books. <laughs> like, how do you do it? How do you stay motivated? Is it draining on you, or does it feel very fulfilling, or maybe a mix of the both?
1: It's definitely both um i'm oh, I feel like I'm always tired, I think that's cause I'm older, but I also <laughs> feel like um i it keeps me sane, you know, I feel like the crazier the world gets, the more I feel like. This is something I can control. I can create a world. I can control the way people move through it. I can control their choices. I can control the outcome. Um, I can control integrity, you know, um, and and that's nice when you're looking at a world where you feel like so much is out of control. Um, and and so that gives it gives me solace and. And at the end of the day, I also sew, right? So at the end of the day, I feel like I have something and I could say, I did this. And I always think of Audre Lorde who said, um, we should wake up knowing we have work to do in the world and go, go to bed knowing we've done that work. And, mm. and for me as, as a writer and as an activist, as a mom, as the one who's queer, like I have all of these ways in which I feel like there's so much work to do. <laughs> like we have so much work to do. And for me, writing is the tool I have, mm. um, and, and so, so it, I think I'd feel much more stressed if, if I went to bed and hadn't written all day. It's like, oh, what did you accomplish today? Nothing. Right,
0: sure. You feel like what a waste, a waste of a mm-hmm. day. Okay, this is what, one of my favorite questions. What is a word that you can never spell right on the first try? Uh,
1: well, you know, it's not, can it be? doesn't have to be a word. Like the thing I get wrong all the time, and I was doing it yesterday, is past. And past, so p a s s e d and p a s t. And I always use them wrong. And yesterday, (laughs) I sat in front of my page for I don't know, probably ten minutes. And I'm like, which one is it? Which one is? (laughs) And my editor usually catches it. But I'm like, I want to learn this. This feels so remedial in a way, (laughs) right? And I get so cranky when people use the wrong forms of your, you know, y o u r o y o u apostrophe r e. Um, and, and so that makes me crazy, but yet I can't do it with past and past. So, yeah. so that's,
0: that,
1: that that's where I'm kind of stuck. But, um, in terms of a longer word that I spelled wrong, well, no, uh, that's a
0: great answer. It doesn't even oh, have to okay, come up with a good. word that totally uh, fits. Yeah. I feel like we all have those. And I thought of that question because I was talking to someone who I thought was just such a fantastic writer and was, you know, <laughs> fangirling all over the place. And then I thought. I bet this person can't spell a word. Like I, it oh. just came to me and then I started asking people and I just, those answers always make me laugh because that's so funny. You know, we never get to see that part of an author. We never uh-huh. get to see that part uh-huh. of a writer because an editor's fixed it or, you know, but I, I know that I have it. I cannot spell recommend. What's your word? Recommend. <laughs> there could be seven C's. There could be one. There could be okay. 11 M's. I don't know. Recommendation. Recommend. Like that. Mm-mm. Never happening wow, for so me. so funny. I, and I try to do it. Whenever I write the word now, I'm like, okay. And then I write it. And then the red line comes up underneath. And I'm like, fuck <laughs> you. I hate you. <laughs>
1: um, but At least you get the red line with past yeah. and past. I don't get it. Yeah, you <laughs> don't get the red. You're just, you're just floating it out there. That's like
0: yeah. um, with effect and effect, the mm-hmm, E and the mm-hmm. a, I have no idea the difference of those yeah. two words. Yeah. I just Google it every single time. But speaking of fantastic writers who have had fantastic things and opportunities, you had a TED talk. Oh, yes, I did. <laughs> Can you just tell us how amazing or how not amazing or what it was like? Or <laughs> I mean, it was great. It's about reading slowly. But tell mm-hmm. us about that experience.
1: You know, it was an interesting experience about halfway through, I thought, why am I giving a TED talk? Like, (laughs) You know, it's so interesting because you get caught up in the machine of it. It's like, right. Your career um, is great. If you've given a TED talk, it's like, bitch, I've written all these books. Why am I trying to give a TED talk? (laughs) And, And so I, but then by then I was caught up in it and, and I wanted to write it. I wanted to talk about reading slowly because I think so many young people are, getting pushed to write, you know, with mm-hmm. writing process and all these ways that kids are being quote unquote taught to write. And at the same time, they're being pushed to read quickly, which completely, you know, is the opposite of becoming a writer, right? You read slowly, you study an author's craft, you figure out how they do it, you copy how they do it. And so when, um, so it made sense. And so I started writing the Ted talk and there there's, um, and and I write a certain way and Ted talks are a certain way. And, and, and which is not the way I write. So it was a struggle. Mm. And then, and then I had seen Chimamanda's Ted talk, which is brilliant about a single story. And, and, and she, you know, she refers to the page. She reads, I'm like, Oh, I got this, you know, I got my papers. And then they're like, no, you have to memorize it. And, And I was like, Hell no! I got three days to memorize this now, so that's when it got really frustrating for me. I think I I like I, I'm glad I have given a TED talk, um, but but I'm glad I'm not in the process of writing and about to give a TED talk. <laughs> I think it's it's like writing. I love having written. Sometimes writing is really hard for me. Um, but but I think it's it's interesting to. Be in that room with all of those blackettes, which is a crew of black folks who go to TED, and they give me my life. You know, they're mm. my family. They're brilliant. They're thoughtful. They were in the audience and they were cheering me on. And and, and there's so much love. And I mean, they're brilliant. They're like a marine biologist and um, I don't know rocket scientist. Like these <laughs> people are badass. So once I had finished the TED talk, I was happy, but, and I think I'm happy with it. My son, who's, you know, one of my biggest critics is like, well, you flubbed it a couple of times and <laughs> I would have said this differently, but uh, so I haven't watched it yet. I, sometimes I go on to check how many views and once it got past a million, I was like, oh, I'm good. <laughs>
0: yeah. That's amazing. I didn't watch, I listened to it um, oh, and good. it was great. It <laughs> was so great. Um, but you just, you said that when you're learning to write, you, you read and you study other authors and you copy them and you try to emulate them. Who mm-hmm. are some authors or writers that you were doing that with?
1: Oh, Langston Hughes, definitely. All of his poetry. Um, I did it with James Baldwin when I was younger. I remember trying to rewrite If Beale Street Could Talk when Mm -hmm. I was like in sixth grade. Um, I did it with Robert Frost. Um, I remember reading a book about Phyllis Wheatley and trying to imagine myself the present day Phyllis Wheatley and what would that look like and trying to write about my community and myself as a writer and the only writer in it, um, but but even now I think um, I've learned from so many writers, a lot of poets like Marie Howe and Nikki Giovanni and um, and Raymond Carver and of course Toni Morrison. Like there's so many people who have influenced and informed my own writing.
0: Yeah, um, for people who love Red at the bone. What would be a few books you might recommend to them? They don't have to be the same, but just kind of in the same Mm -hmm. world or maybe things that inspired you during your process or whatever comes to mind.
1: Well, definitely um, Ocean Vong's uh, On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous is an amazing book. Uh, Crick Crack by Edwige Danticat. I thought that. I that felt like that. I learned a lot from her as a writer. Let me think, what else? Um, you know, any of Natalie Diaz's poetry is amazing. And um, my brother was an Aztec. I think that was one of the earlier books I read. What about reactions to the book? You put your, you write a book, it comes
0: out into the world. Mm -hmm. Have there been reactions that have been surprising to you to read at the bone? Things that people have said, (laughs) either good or bad, but just like things that you know, because you create something. I get this mm-hmm. a lot with the podcast. I create an episode and I think, oh my God, that episode is so bad. Everyone's going to hate it. And then I get a million messages about how great it was or vice versa or, oh, you know, things so that great. you that you do. And then all of a sudden, once it's out of your hands, it ha- takes on uh-huh. a life of its own. So have you had any of that yeah. yet?
1: So, yeah, it's so true because once it's out of your hands, it's not yours anymore, right? It right. belongs to the world to do what with it what they will. Um, I'm always surprised when people read me. <laughs> you know, it's, just, it's just like, whoa I remember, I, my favorite was um Coates and, and you know, he had just um dropped um his book The Water Dancer, which is so brilliant. I, I read it and I listened to the audiobook that Joe Morton reads and mm. he just takes it to a whole other level. But I remember Tanahasi got my book and he's, he he texted me. He's like, "Oh, you're trying to write one of those books people are going to actually finish." <laughs> 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 which, you know, had me rolling. Cause it, I think, I never think that because my books are short, people are finishing, you're going to finish them. Cause I do have longer books that I have not finished, <laughs> um, reading that other people have written. Um, but I think that just the love that it has gotten, cause I always feel like when I write a book, it's so deeply specific and, um, and it's, only going to resonate with people who have lived some of the experiences. Mm. Um, And so then when it travels outside of people's experiences, and, and kind of attaches to them in this whole kind of otherworldly way, it it blows my mind, it blows my mind. You know, uh, this woman, and people will always say, you know, I'm a 75-year-old white woman from California. And this book spoke to me. You know, people do and should tell me who they are, even when I'm standing right in front of them. But um, but it is interesting who it speaks to. I feel like with Brown Girl Dreaming, it was much, much more that because that was a memoir about me growing up in Bushwick and and all of these older white men and these, you know, boys, these eleven year old boys, and so all the, these audiences that I had never imagined. I think with Red at the Bone, I'm not. I I see the reviews. Um, people when I go to readings and people show up and they talk to me or they have tears. Um, or they talk about their own um, parents' teenage pregnancy or their teenage pregnancies. Um, it it just kind of blows me away. It's always surprising once the book is in the world, um, the life that it has or doesn't have.
0: Yeah. Okay, I just have one last question for you. If you could mm-hmm. have one person dead or alive read Red at the Bone, who would you want it to be?
1: <laughs> oh, man. I would I would love, you know, I would love for Toni Morrison to read it because it would mean she was still here. Right. You know, I think her spirit is very much with us and I think there there's not a Black writer living in America today who can't say Her hand was on their shoulder in some part of their writing, Uh, so it would have been nice to have had her for a couple of more years. Um, Can I tell you my funny Toni Morrison story? Yes, (laughs) all Toni Morrison stories welcome at the stacks. So I was introducing her for a reading at the Philadelphia Free Library. This was a couple of years ago. And, you know, I had gone down to Philadelphia. Was so excited about this. And, and she was lovely. We had met a couple of times before. And so after I do my introduction, she comes up onto the stage and I go sit down next to the person who travels with her. And, you know, I had to everyone turn off their cell phones, all of this stuff. Um, and so the woman sitting next to me, I, I forget her name, but Tony's um, right hand woman um, had this huge purse. And so the phone started ringing in her purse and, and and she, you know, and it's ringing loudly. And she hands it to me and I'm like, push. I'm like, don't give me your pocketbook. <laughs> and she's like, no, this is Tony's bag. And and her phone, that's her phone ringing. And I don't know how to answer it. So I'm like, I am not going inside Tony Morrison's <laughs> pocketbook. <laughs> So the phone just kept ringing because I was like, I'm like, I'm not going to dig through Miss Morrison's bag. (laughs) Um, But that was my last great, funny Tony Morrison story. It eventually stopped ringing. But but, you know, I'm a I'm a black girl who's been brought up right. (laughs) And that means not going through, you know, Queen Mother's bag. (laughs)
0: Well, it's nice to know that Toni Morrison was just like all of us and had a cell phone that she did not know how to work.
1: You know, <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> she was human too. Um, oh. Well, Jacqueline, this was so amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Um, as I mentioned on Wednesday, so two days from when you guys are hearing this, uh, we'll be discussing Reddit the Bone in detail. We will have spoilers and all of that. So if you haven't finished the book yet, finish the book. It's finishable, according to ta <laughs> Coates. So that's all you need to know.
1: <laughs> but Jacqueline, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Tracy. It's been really fun talking to you. You too. And we will see you guys in the stacks.
0: Thank you all so much for listening and thank you to Jacqueline for being our guest. I'd also like to say thank you to the folks over at Riverhead for setting up this interview. Make sure you read the book before this week's episode of the Stacks Book Club, where we will be discussing Red at the Bone in detail. Yes, that means spoilers. You can find everything we discussed on today's episode in the link in the show notes. For more from the Stacks, please follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. To join the Stacks Pack and get inside access to this show, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks. Make sure you are subscribed to this show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagirajus. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.